Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. This is the 19th T podcast. Just Kieran Marsh with you this week. Drew's off on a junket. No, no, it's a well-earned break for the big fella. It's been a, it's been a huge couple of weeks for Drew's, both uh, podcast-wise and personally as well. So he's taking a break, and I'm steering the ship solo this evening. We'll be joined in just a few moments by Brett Rankin, uh, one of the the better stories and one of the more popular members of the PGA Tour of Australasia. He's been out there now for a tick over 10 years and has got an incredible journey to share. So looking forward to bringing that to you very shortly. Ahead of that, though, we must uh, take a moment to look at this weekend's event at the Lake Course at the Olympic Club in California. I speak, of course, of the 76th U.S. Women's Open. The first time it's to be played at the Olympic Club, a phenomenal course. It's, it's been host to five men's U.S. Opens in the past, as well as three U.S. amateurs, the most recent of which for the men's Opens was 2012. Uh, Webb Simpson victory there at the Olympic Club and infamous scenes in the presentation for Webb. Make sure you catch that on, on the YouTubes if you haven't previously. It's quite the laugh uh, they will be playing the women as a past 71 between uh, 6400 and 6500 yards at the late course a lim kim the defending champion and what was an incredibly unique tournament in 2020 and she given the distance she hits the ball with off the tee will be one of the favorites again for this tournament it will favor length make no doubt about that there's some ominous ominous par fives on this course so not only will a lim kim be one to watch but of course, we we speak of players like A and A Inspiration Championship, uh, Patty Tavitarnik at Brooke Henderson, Lexi Thompson, and both Nelly and Jessica Corder, all of which hit a very long ball. So keep an eye out for them. In terms of some other ones to watch, well, it's the regulars: Jin Young Ko, Imbi Park, uh, Lydia Ko. All of these players expected, particularly uh, Lydia Ko, who's in an incredible run of form now in what is certainly the comeback year for the New Zealander. Uh, They are a couple of players to watch, uh, along with our Aussies in the field. So four Aussies uh, participating in the 2021 US Women's Open. Hannah Green, of course, um, the the most favoured and probably our best chance in the tournament, shortly followed by Minji Lee, the West Aussie, who's been in some form of late, gets a start tell you who does get a start after some outstanding form in recent weeks she's we, she's without doubt been the former Australian golfer worldwide in the past four weeks and that's Sarah Kemp so Kempy's in the field and we have an amateur in Emily Maha so I don't know too much about Emily's story she has qualified in an incredibly deep amateur field I keep an eye out for Emily Maha and one other one to watch across the weekend uh, Drudes has got massive massive raps on this young player and that is Rachel Heck. So she's a qualifier for this tournament. She is a freshman at Stanford University, won her last three regular season events, the NCAA Stanford Regional, the individual portion of the NCAA Championship as well and she was a medalist in a qualifier for this event. 
Uh, so she is on an incredible hot streak at the moment. Drudes has got massive wraps on Rachel Heck, says she is one to watch in the next few years in the women's game as a whole and is not even out of college yet. So keep an eye on Rachel Heck, as well as our Aussies, Emily Maha, Sarah Kemp, Minji Lee and Hannah Green. So a huge weekend, one of the biggest on the calendar for the women's, the 2021 US Women's Open at the Olympic Club. Look forward to wrapping that up with Drewdster on Monday evening, along with the Memorial Tournament on the PGA Tour this weekend at Muirfield Village, one of the favourite courses of this podcast uh, up there with with the Riv and Colonial. Uh, it's a throwback to everything that's great about golf. So enjoy and bask in Muirfield Village if you're flicking between that and Olympic Club. Two excellent courses on display across the two major tours this weekend. So as I said, joined this evening uh, by Brett Rankin. Uh, this is 2.0. We did have a fantastic podcast recorded that uh, we lost in the cloud somewhere, which was a shame, uh, but to his credit, and I think it speaks volumes of him, he, he jumped straight back on to, to record a couple of weeks later. It's an excellent story. Uh, it's a story of persistence. It's certainly not a, a story of glory like you've heard from a few other players. He's he's seen his, his fair share of trials and tribulations as Brett Rankin. But to his credit, uh, he's, he's reinvented the body and, and the game a little bit in the last couple of years and, and found the form he certainly knows he's capable of. So looking forward to sharing um, this story with you, looking forward to keeping an eye on his journey uh, in the next probably 12 to 18 months because I think um, off the back of a break in COVID, he could really be set for, um, for, for a big, you know, big period provided um, the PGA Tour of Australasia get their backside into gear and organise some events for our for our homegrown players. So without any further ado, here's Brett Rankin. Brett, welcome to the 19th Tee. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, mate. Uh, 2.0, eh? <laughs> 2.0, yes. We did flag with the loyal listeners the fantastic chat that they'll never get to hear due to the, the technical issues. So hopefully uh, 2.0 lives up to the billing of 1.0. But it's a pleasure to have you back and, and looking forward to actually securing this recording this time around. Mate, last time we spoke was, was probably kind of no man's land. You weren't really sure of what you were doing and where the calendar was heading. Uh, but you're certainly in the swing of events. How's it probably first and foremost been, being back on the road and, and back in a bit of routine of, of tournament golf? Oh, it's been, it's been awesome, obviously. Yeah, last year wasn't too much fun and all those questions about, uh, you know, what's going to happen next six months. I think there's still a lot of those questions up in the air uh, here in Australia, but at least we've got Pro-Ams going again and we've had some tour events earlier in the year, so... You know, things are slowly starting to get back to normal, which is nice. We'll go through the schedule in just a moment, but given it's still topical uh, for when we record, and, and given I'm, I'm assuming he's a he's a golfer that you've spent much of your life watching, I wanted to get your thoughts on on Phil Mickelson's victory at the, the US PGA. It's it's still, other than the the beef between Bryson and Brooks, it's still the biggest news in town in golf at the moment. And just, I suppose, as I said, as a person who no doubt grew up uh, as your game was developing, watching Phil's career, how, how it hit you with a 50-year-old becoming the oldest uh, player in history to win a men's major. It's pretty impressive, wasn't it? Um, well, I definitely wrote him off a couple of years ago. I didn't think he'd ever win another major because I thought he was getting a bit too old and uh, the game had probably gone past him. But um, he certainly reinvented himself the last sort of couple of years and he's in that long... And he, hit, he was out driving Kepka there a few times in that last round. So um, I think that's the biggest impressive thing is how far he can hit it for a 50-year-old. Like, that's why he was able to win at Kiowa Island. And, you know, with his phenomenal short game, I don't know if anyone's ever had a better short game in, 
in their career than Phil. So, um, yeah, definitely surprised, but so super impressive. I know you've gone probably through your own physical transformation in the last couple of years, so you can probably speak from experience. How important is it to probably reach that that fork in the road of your career, so to speak, where you've, you've really got a decision to make to break things down and start again or, or, or probably you know, continue down a relatively short path and, and reach the end of your career. It's, it's quite, a, uh, quite a transformational moment to get to that point and then to make the decision to really commit to it. Yeah, absolutely, especially when you start to get a bit older and, um, you know, you don't have that flexibility or the ability just to wake up every, no- every morning and go play golf. So, um, you know, I'm 34 and I'm having to do a lot of that now, especially with my, uh, my back. I don't have a very good back, so I can understand... Uh, how important being strong is for golf and it's definitely longevity of, of a golfer's career for sure. And you can see Phil's made a massive effort with that in the last sort of five years. Um, and it's definitely no coincidence that he was able to win off the back of that. So, um, yes, I think being an athlete in general is so, so important in golf today. Brett, let's take you back to where it all started. We do generally like to get the, the seminal moments of our guests' golfing careers. How did, how did the, the love affair with, with golf start for you? Where did the journey begin? And, and I suppose who were the influential people at the start of your golf journey? Uh, I'll start with my old man. Uh, I think I was about five or six years old, and uh, I think we were playing cricket in the backyard. Well, this is the story he tells anyway. Um, and he reckons I swung a, a cricket bat more like a golf club. So I thought, oh, maybe he's got a little bit of talent here. I might buy him some plastic clubs and, you know, the plastic balls that you get when you're five or six years old and fell in love with it from the word go. Like, I was outside all day just hitting this white ball around and I think I got to about the age of nine, eight or nine years old and Dad was like, you know, if you really love the game, it could be your job one day. I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. (laughs) So I've known from a pretty early age what I wanted to do with my life. Um which is definitely something that most people don't know what they want to do for their whole lives. So I was pretty fortunate in that regard. Uh, probably a, a slight digression, but given that certainty that you speak about from a young age, how, how close to where you thought you, you would be are you now? And, and how do you reflect on probably that journey comparatively to what you had imagined for yourself at such a young age? Oh, yeah, there's probably two ways of looking at it. I probably expected to be further. In my career, but then I'm also probably pretty lucky and pretty fortunate to be where I am right now. So um, it's sort of a half, glass half full sort of situation. Um, but uh, very proud of what I've done so far in my life. But there's definitely a lot more that I want to do with golf before I hang them up. That's for sure. What was the progression probably through the the, the junior pathways for you? There's a few probably common paths that we've experienced through through guests and it's probably an even mixture of I suppose young players who played a variety of sports and then specialised into their later teenage years or ones who were pretty set from the outset and and progressed I, I suppose through junior pathways right the way through to a state academy of sports so what was the the, the Brett Rankin path? Yeah basically that uh, started with basically penance junior penance at Pacific Golf Club um, you know, winning club champs there and then getting selected in the QAS, uh, the state teams. Um, fortunate enough to get in the IIS and play for Australia at some point. Uh, and then, yeah, went through that whole academy AOS, AOS situation. Uh, and then went to Q school, I think, when I was 22 or 23 and got through there and, and then been a pro for 10 or 11 years. So 
Um, it's been cool. Like definitely the QIS and RIS experiences were definitely uh, eye openers and, and massively helpful for me anyway. There's a few different directions we can go from there, but first and foremost, I want to, I want to go to Pacific golf club. It's a, it's a course that listeners of this podcast will be familiar with. We've done a bit of content out there around play between myself and, and Drew's where he got the better of me. But I think one that's slept on a little bit in Brisbane, and, and that's probably because it's not necessarily still in the prime that it would have been in the in the 90s and early 2000s, but certainly a challenging course. And I imagine a, a really good one to cut your teeth on when you're kind of developing your game. Yeah, 100%. Like, that golf course 20 years ago used to be brutal. Like, it used to be so tight off the, off the tee. Greens used to be really quick. Um, but over the years, they've made it a lot more... Uh, player friendly user friendly for the members so it's become a lot easier i found uh in the last 10 years but it's a great golf club the membership base there are awesome they've been very supportive of me over the years uh always getting messages from them still to this day when i do well in events so um it was a great place to grow up you know you had to hit you had to shape the ball pretty well around that around that golf course had a great mixture of, of different holes um very uneven lies so you know you learn you learn the game it was a good place to learn the game from. The only the only downfall with that place is it doesn't have the best practice facilities. So unfortunately, I don't spend much time there anymore. I spend most of my time at Brisbane Golf Club. But um, but if Brisbane had better, uh, if Pacific had better facilities, I'd spend a lot more time there. That's for sure. It's not surprising to hear you say the the support of the membership. I think it's a common theme of of the people we interview here. Is is that first or that second club where they started is a place they still have such a connection with and and those communities are often so proud of those players that are born from that nursery and go on to to make a name for themselves it must mean a lot uh, it clearly means a lot to you now retrospectively but I, I imagine as well as you are kind of coming up and and making that choice particularly the transition to being professional to know that you have that that wholehearted support of a of a membership behind you must be must be quite a proud moment Oh yeah, absolutely, and um, and you always go back, and you always you always see the guys there that have helped you out. I know there was a few members there who um, you know threw me some money over the years when I was an amateur to go over the US and play amateur events stuff over there, and get me to Q schools, and you know still still in touch with those with those guys today. And you know every time you see someone at the golf club, they're always asking how you're going, and you know they're always talking about you and stuff like that. So. It's it's hugely important to um, have that those members behind you growing up at a young age because you know unless you're in a, a pretty rich family it's it's hard to find the financial money that you need for an expensive sport like golf. What was the QAS experience like for you, Brad? Probably a two part question: A, who was your who was your class? Who did you come through with? And and B, one of the the most common themes we hear from players who've gone through that academy of sports system, irrespective of which state it is, is is how important those few years are in terms of, you know, probably taking that next step in, in your discipline, your routine, your, yeah, your practice and, and your application and, and, and really setting you up to make that next step to turn pro. Yeah, hundred percent. It, it really, they really show you how to practice. Um, they give you a lot of, a lot of, a lot of drills and stuff that you would, would never be exposed to if you weren't in those programs, gives you access to the right people, trainers, psychologists, um, personal trainers, coaches, all that kind of stuff. Uh, obviously, the funding they, that comes with it too enables you to go all over the country to play in, you know, your top 
top amateur events as Aussie, like Aussie Amateur and Riversdale Cup and stuff like that. So um, they're pretty important programs for for young golfers coming through, that's for sure. And and in terms of your class, who did you come through those, both, I suppose, the QAS and probably your time at the AAS as well? Um, guys like Blythe, Adam Blythe and Andrew Dote. Um, uh, who else they come up through? Uh, Scott Smith. I don't think he plays much anymore. Kirk Carlson, he played on tour for a while. Um, who else was there? A few other local guys, no, no one big, but Andrew Dote was probably the biggest name out of, out of the class I came through with. Do you find that they're the type of guys that you generally have a bond with, given you've gone through that experience? Often we hear that despite being, in, obviously, a, a, an individual sport by nature, there is a sense of... Um, particularly when you're off the course, the sense of camaraderie, guys that you share a common bond with, particularly, I suppose, the ones that whether it's going through the QAS or going through Q school at the same time, you're facing the same challenges and there's that shared experience that, that really kind of bonds people together. Yeah, we're, you know, we're, all, we're all trying to do, you know, we're all trying to get there. We spend a lot of time with each other. You know, you do a lot of competitive practice against each other. So, you know, it's it's just natural to to form those great relationships that last as long as your careers do, really, because you're basically always around each other. So, um, I think that's just how Queenslanders have been for a long time too. We usually stick together pretty well. I know we're pretty biased, but oh, I think the QIS seems to to punch above its weight in terms of what we produce. It's probably a question without notice and putting you on the spot a bit, but can you put that down to anything? Is, is there anything that you hear having been through that system that you hear maybe from players from other states that you think Queensland does better? Because as I said, in terms of our representation, um, you know, what we've seen come out of that QAS system, particularly in the last probably five to six years, is quite incredible comparatively across the states. Yeah, it's been pretty impressive, actually, to be honest. They've just got, um, they've just got the right people working in that program. Uh, Tony Meyer, Richard Woodhouse, um, uh, Cam Smith's coach up on the Sunshine Coast. Um, what's his name? Grantfield. Uh, yeah, Grantfield. You know, you got some great, great coaches there and just the right people giving the right advice. Um, and a lot of those guys, a lot of us ex-QIS players that have turned pro, we do a lot of practice with them every now and again too. So I think those players are getting pretty good exposure from the professional level as well. So when they go to turn pro, they're, they're ready to go. There's no, there's no real gap anymore between being an elite amateur and a professional. And I think, I think they do a hell of a job in um, bringing that gap pretty close. You mentioned the right people in the right roles. And, and one name I wanted to speak to you about was Richard Woodhouse, obviously a, a coach there, but your coach as well. And, and I'm wondering how important that role is for, you know, not just yourself, but all players. When you find that person, uh, you know, you don't often see a lot of change in coaches in golf because it seems to me that when you have a relationship one-to-one in a sport like golf, that you kind of cling on to that for all it's worth when you know it works. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, and the beautiful with Richard is he's so knowledgeable, but he's constantly evolving his um, his, touch, his coaching methods and He's constantly improving his information, studying, all that kind of stuff. So he never gets you never get a stale lesson with Richard. It's always he's always constantly evolving. So you are as well as a player, and I just find his communication one on one is is second to none. So um, I always leave leave a lesson with a pretty pretty clear idea of what I need to do and 
how I, what I need to do to swing at my best. Take us back to your early 20s and the decision to turn pro. You know, you're at that kind of, I suppose, what would have been 2008, 9, 10 sort of region and, and what that sort of choice was like for you, why it was made at that time and, and maybe if those first probably 12 to 18 months on the other side of turning pro were what you expected them to be. Yeah, so I turned the end of 2010 um, and it would have been 12 months early, but I broke my ankle playing basketball about a month out from Q school. Um, the reason I wanted to go a year earlier is because I started to find um, amateur stuff getting a bit stale on me. I didn't find I was um, improving so the last year or two of being an amateur. So I felt like I was ready to make that transition and then made that transition to being a pro and I reckon I, I learnt more in the first 12 months being on tour than I did in the last three years of being an amateur. So um, in hindsight, probably would have, probably should have turned earlier. Um, I think the learning curve and the progression of my game um, was, was faster. So, um, but loved it. It was hard. But I loved it. Do you think there's probably distinct personalities that might adapt quicker? And it comes from the perspective of we spoke about how valuable those few years and say an academy system is, but more often than not, almost everything is provided for you. And it's yep. almost an overnight shift that you are, you know, I suppose, the keeper of the keys and everything's down to you. And it's not just driving yourself to, to go and practice or go to the weights room. It's booking your flights. It's your accommodation. It's organizing yeah. your clubs. Like it, it takes probably a certain person to adapt to that straight away. And I imagine there's a large percentage of people that really struggle with that shift. Yeah, exactly right. And, and the first year out, you're going to places you've never been before. Yeah, like you say, you're doing all the bookings yourself. No one's doing it for you anymore where sometimes that can be a little bit of a downfall with QIS. Uh, the funding's great, but back when I was doing it, most of the stuff was organised for us. I don't know if they still do that Do that now. They probably don't, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was a massive eye-opener. I learned to cook on the road, um, you know, the right places to stay, try and do it as cheap as you can. Uh, yeah, just so different to... And also just belonging, right? So, like, the first 12 months... Like, the last 12 months of being an amateur, you kind of knew where you were in the pecking order. Uh, you knew if you played well that week, you're probably a good chance of winning. But you turn pro and you, the depth of the fields are a lot stronger. You don't know really where you stand in the pecking order. Um, it just takes a little while to sort of get that belief and confidence and knowing that the game's good enough to stand up against the guys that have been around for a few years. So it's pro probably one of the biggest things is the belief factor. What was what was important? Are there, I suppose, moments you reflect on in that first 12 to 18 months in terms of the belief factor that really resonated and, and probably rammed at home for you that you belonged and you'd made the right decision? Yeah, it was prob probably the thing I remember that stands out for me is um, was just before I won my first Pro-Am, I think I was down to my last like four or $500. Um, and I was on the road up north on the Sunshine Coast and I was like, well, if I don't play well next week, I basically would go home and do some work for, for a few weeks to, to get the money back up. And I ended up going out, I think a couple of days later, and getting my first win. So being in a situation where you're pretty desperate for money and, and desperate for result and then to produce my best golf to get the win was was a massive conference booster for me. And 
I think I ended up winning three or four more Pro-Ams after that. So it was kind of like once the floodgates opened and that confidence was there and that belief was there, I was off and running. So, um, And it's always nice to, nice to know when, you know when you're down to your last few dollars that when you really need to perform, I brought my best stuff. So, yeah, that was definitely a belief builder. It's an interesting place to be. And, and uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you can probably take yourself back to being in the moment because I, I know you said you, you're cognizant of it leading into a tournament that you really need to win. But when you're actually out there and, and you're standing over the ball and you're making a shot, are you the type of person that has that in the back of your mind? Are you able to block it out? Or, or is it actually a more of a motivating factor for you knowing that there is a lot riding on, you know, the next four, five, six holes and that kind of spurs you on? Because we often hear about, you know, players um, missing a putt that costs them a certain amount of dollars and, and we dismiss it as if they wouldn't be aware of it. But I'm really cognizant that probably some players are and that, in fact, they're very aware of it and it often spurs them on to, to play better. Yeah, I would say when you're in a situation where you, you need the money for auto merit or something like that, you're aware of it. Um, but it doesn't, it, it motivates you. And I also find it, it switches you on a little bit, it gets your focus sharpened a little bit. You sort of, sort of forces you to lock in. Uh, I found that when I've been in situations where I needed the result, where I've produced your, your focus and your mental approach to that tournament is just a lot sharper and a lot more focused in on what you're trying to achieve and um, yeah a lot more in the moment I've, I've found in the past. You mentioned shortly after turning pro you take that first trip over the states to to try Q school there's probably two lines I want to go down here one's Q school which we'll get to in a moment but Take us through that that step up to going and playing golf in the states, because I imagine for you know for for a fellow who's grown up in Queensland, cut his teeth at Pacific, he's come through the QIS and the AIS, and he's played some you know pretty high level golf here in Australia. You always hear about that that next level when you go to the states, and often getting lost in you know such a uh, such a big golfing uh, environment. So talk about that, that kind of first trip and and really wrapping your head around what it's like playing top level golf in, in the states. Yeah, just it, it was just a lot different. I found um, just the courses were a lot different to what we do here in Australia. Uh, the type of golf that was was required, um, but it was unbelievable experience. Like you certainly you go back and you realise where you want to be in your career. Um, it was also a lot of fun. So when I went over, it was in twenty uh, two thousand eight when I was still an amateur. So I went over and played all the elite um, amateur events over there. Um, with a bunch of guys who came through the QIS. Um, but yeah, great trip. Courses were phenomenal, just in immaculate condition. Players were awesome. They did it different to what we do in Australia. Um, you kind of, yeah, it's just, just so different to here in Australia. That was the biggest thing I got from it. Is it a bit of a smack in the face to, you know, by that stage, you've been swinging a club for 12, 14 years. Everything's been building towards a decision to turn pro. You've kind of modelled your game around something you believe strongly is going to work. And then you go to, you know, that the place that has the best tour in the world where you really want to play week in, week out and realise that maybe, maybe there's parts of my game I don't have right now that I really need to play here at the top level. And I imagine that can be probably a bit of a bit of a shock at first to understand that you've done all this work and there's probably still some significant gaps that, that you need to plug. Oh, yeah, for sure, absolutely. The biggest thing coming away from there, realising what I had to improve on more so was short game. 
I thought my short game was pretty good at that point in my career, but um, I found out pretty quickly the Americans do a lot better than what we do. It. Um, and they and what I loved about the American culture in regards to golf was there's no tall poppy syndrome that we have down here in Australia. Um, they didn't care how they did it. They got the results on the board and their fellow Americans were so supportive of each player. They're really just so such a different mentality to what we've got down in Australia. And I find that's probably, probably holds us back a little bit. Um, I think majority of Australians don't want to put their neck out because of that tall poppy syndrome that we have down here. Whereas Americans, they don't care about that kind of stuff and they have a lot better support, I would say. It's interesting that you note that, Brett, because often when we talk about tall poppy syndrome, which is you know alive and well here in Australia, we know that, but it's yeah. often framed in the context of, uh, say, fans or commentators to athletes as opposed to athletes amongst themselves. Do, do you find that that's the case? In I mean, you obviously you've drawn the comparison to golf in America, but do you find that maybe we aren't necessarily as supportive of each other's success in, in Australian golf as we could be. And, and, and that may hold us back. Is that, is that kind of what you were referring to? Yeah, I would say both sides. I'd say um, probably not as good as the Americans um, in regards to players supporting each other. I'd say sometimes, you know, sometimes you play well here in Australia and you have a really good result and you're kind of embarrassed to say like what you've shot and like what you've won and what you've done. It kind of sometimes players make you feel like you're big noting yourself or or something along the lines of that. Uh, I also think the Australian media is intensely harsh on their on their athletes. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think they help at all whatsoever. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we just by volume we don't have the sheer number of players that say the Americans do, but we have an awful lot more good players than what the Australian media tends to write about. You know, we tend to narrow ourselves down to a big four, really, um, when it comes to the men's game. And and increasingly and pleasingly, increasingly, it's seeming we're talking about more women uh, as the Australian women's game goes from strength to strength. But when you can compare that to the States who, you know, they do it so well in terms of building up their whole I suppose, cohort of golfers that are coming through at the same time rather than just talking about Tiger or just talking about Jordan Spieth or Justin Thomas. You know, there's a lot of guys that are on the fringes, your Daniel Burgers, your Gary Woodlands, that, you know, that sort of player in Australia probably doesn't get spoken about by our golfing media. No, it doesn't. It's always, um, and I can't understand why why that happens with the Australian, like the big events here in Australia is that they focus on overseas players because, you know, that sells tickets, but I think a lot of the time there's a lot of good players, young players in Australia get overlooked that are like hugely impressive golf golfers themselves. Um, and I feel like that's only going to hurt us in the next 10, 20 years because, you know, these guys coming through that no one's going to know about. Um, and it only hurts us as a brand as well. Talk to me, and the other arm I wanted to, to go down was Q School. Um, something I know you've, you've experienced number of times in your career and we've heard I mean we've heard a mixture of both good and bad Q school stories but but honestly a lot more bad than good it seems like and I I don't know that there is any other or any better way to do it 
but but shit it's tough on the people that that i suppose go through it both emotionally physically financially to yeah. come up short in in such a such a gauntlet of an arena like q school yeah exactly what you just said it's um it's a stressful week uh in regards to performing um on your bank account um on your emotions on your physical um abilities it's just a really hard week to peak for you know it's 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 golf i find golf is really it's one of those sports is really difficult to to bring your best stuff when you really want it so when you got a highly stressful environment like q school being asked to produce produce your best golf on that one week is always such a challenge um, and you're always in a foreign place, a golf course you probably haven't been to before. Um, different countries, what talks different languages, um, different cultures. It's uh, it's definitely you're out of your comfort zone, and yeah, some 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 good things happen, and other times a lot of bad shit happens as well. So just one of those weeks where you, you work hard for, and you're just hoping you get through and play well, and can just get through and not have to go back again. It's interesting as well, I think, because unlike the security of a card, which allows you probably to identify a routine that works for you week in, week out, with, of course, variables like different courses and different cities, there's probably still things you can do. Like, you know, you're three days out, you're two days out, you're the day before, you're always doing the same things. Whereas that sort of random nature of Q school um, and probably even the different ways that they do Q schools on the different tours. There's no there's no element of consistency that allows you as a player to fall into any sort of helpful routine. No, there isn't, but you've just got to try and do what you can to make it as normal as you possibly can, I guess. Um, you know, getting always fine. If you can get there a good three days before and, and familiarise yourself with the facility itself. So, you know, by the time you come to that first round, you're not, not wondering where everything is, you know, where the putting green is, you know, where the lockers are, you know, where the driving range is, you know how long it takes to get from the locker to the driving range, to the chipping green, to the putting green, um, where you're going to eat, all that kind of stuff. I find the more work you can do two or three days before the event, the better off you'll play for that week. Um, the more questions you have, the worse you play, I find. What it does do, though, is I suppose allows you to play in some, some pretty amazing places around the world. And I, I don't know whether or not when you're in the moment, given the high-stakes nature of Q School, you have the ability to appreciate that. But when you reflect on, on, on your opportunities, what are some of the more enjoyable moments you've had going through that experience? Um, probably in Europe, going to places like Austria and Spain. Like Spain was always one of the places I really wanted to visit before I went there. found that place pretty cool. Um, just different, just just how different they do it over there. It's just really cool. Uh, most of the time when I do Q school, I do it by myself because I have to do my own thing. So don't really have any funny stories. Uh, I've got some stories from back um, in the One Asia Q school, Asian Q school days about ten years ago. But we won't go there because there are a lot of alcohol and <laughs> not safe for work. <laughs> no, not not safe for an uh, interview like this. Um, but, yeah, no, you, you definitely learn to have a bit of fun when you're younger on tour, that's for sure. Um, definitely had a lot of fun in the US when I was over there. Um, 
but yeah, the older I've gotten, the less of that stuff I do. Basically, don't do any of that kind of stuff anymore. It's too important. You golf, you can't really go out drinking. It's too competitive. Well, I imagine as well when you've got the the amount of young players snapping at your heels, who you know they take that that talent and that time for granted, much like you would have done yourself. You know, five yeah. ten years ago, you don't have that luxury anymore. It's nah. it's a very concerted effort to to get the best out of yourself over you know three or four days. hundred um, percent. I especially found like sleep is such an important thing for me, and if I'm not getting my sleep, I'm I'm pretty much useless. Um, and I found drinking any sort of alcohol is just the worst thing for my sleep. Um, so I usually don't play well, don't think well, don't do anything really that great if I'm not getting my my the proper sleep that I need. So um, yeah, I've just gotten to a point in my career where I'm getting older body doesn't handle that kind of stuff anymore as well as it used to uh, i get a bit grumpy when i don't get my sleep so i try and stay away from that kind of stuff talk to us about pro-ams because uh, I'm, we're going to get to your win at the the ntpga in, in 2019 but i was really interested I, I pulled up an article today when i was doing a bit of reading and there's a line in here um in one of the the kind of the reports post your victory in the Northern Territory where it says you feared that um, at least amongst your peers, you'd always become known as just a pro-am player and that breaking through for that victory, um, you know, probably legitimised in many, many respects what you knew you were capable of. So while we will get to that, I want to kind of backtrack to pro-ams because you spend an awful lot of your time you know, taking that pro-am circuit, we get you in the middle of one right now as you work your way down uh, the Queensland coast. I think the perception of pro-ams, um, for those who might have the opportunity to participate or who've, you know, um, I, I suppose viewed them or spectated at them before, is far different to the reality of uh, a pro participating in them. So maybe probably from your side, talk to us through the, the pro-am experience and, I suppose what it's meant for you, it's, it's been a large proportion of your career, but I imagine it's not, uh, it's not always roses. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's a lot of hard work. Um, you're spending a lot of time at the golf course itself. Um, you know, you, you're getting there an hour before your tea time. You're spending basically five hours with people you don't know, um, which is fine. Like that's cool. It's always cool meeting people, but, it's it's the it's the it's the same questions day in day out. Um, it's the long presentations after a round of golf. Um, it's dealing with a lot of players that or members or sponsors that may be a little bit intoxicated. What comes with that? Uh, and you're spending a lot of time places that aren't, you know, they're sort of more in the in the let's say the sticks or on golf courses that aren't, you know, that great here in Australia. So it's and the money's not great either, really. So um, a lot of time you're spending in your car, you, you're on the road a lot. Um, it's, it's not as glamorous as everyone thinks it might be. And I think that's the, there's probably, and I, I mean, we're not going to solve it here, Brett, but there, I think that's why there's potentially a, a tear missing because for someone who has ability such as yourself, who's probably been unlucky in many respects at, at Q schools or, or at tournaments where you know you've you've missed out on on exemptions to play further, we have a tier missing that forces you back into a situation like this where you 
you're driving in between proams just to just to put food on the table. There seems to be for mine. There's a there's a real gap in the pathway that a lot of players get lost, and and you know there's probably some some careers and some stories that we'll never see purely because they've been sucked into the vacuum like like the, the proam circuit. Yeah, yeah, it is. They're exactly right. Um, yeah, we are we are missing. We are missing a consistent schedule or secondary tour here in Australia. It'd be, it'd be really nice if um, if we had something like 20 or 25 tournaments a year where we're playing four days on a consistent basis, um, playing proper 72-hole tournaments. It's so, it's so different with your preparation and how you go about your week and your business than it is pro-am life. Um, and I think that's probably what hurts us a lot here in Australia is because we're only playing a lot of one and two day events. We're not playing four day events where you got to really, you know, think your way around for 72 holes and go through the ups and downs that, that come with playing four days in a row. Whereas when you're playing a one day program, you don't play well, you just reset and you could win the next day in the next program. So, um, yeah, I feel like that's probably definitely hurting us here in Australia. And I think if you look back 25 years ago, we had a good tour here in Australia when Greg Norman was at, at his best and bringing all in, bringing in that uh, that sponsorship money with the big companies and whatever. That's kind of it's deteriorated over the last 10, 15 years, and we don't have that that tour anymore. Really, we've only got the 10 or 12 events, and well, you got three or four big events, and basically, if you don't play well in those three or four big events, you can't really keep your card. So, programs become very important. Let's go back to August of 2019. I flagged the, the, the win, the maiden win at the NTPGA. I, I want to maybe take you back, though, to your form leading in and, and what your mindset was like going into that tournament because you, you'd been on a good run and I, I wonder if there was anything different about that week to others where you thought maybe, maybe this was a week where I can string some good golf together given my consistency and, and form leading in. Yeah, definitely. My form leading in was um, was was pretty good. I was, I think, I won maybe a couple of proams the week of coming into NTPGA, and I'd been playing pretty well all year. Really, I think I won, I won comfortably and lay in a four day proam up there. Um, had some good results in the tour events. Continued that form through the proam schedule in July, August in Queensland. Picked up a few wins there. And then going into the week itself, I knew I was just hitting the ball really good. Uh, I knew where I was going. I knew I had all the shots that I needed. Um, and I didn't go into the week going thinking I could win this week. It was it was just like, I'm playing well. I'm going to have a good week. Let's see what happens. So, and I got off to a good start in the tournament. And I was just hitting it so good. And if anything, I actually didn't really putt that great that week, which was which was really weird to look back on being my first first win on tour. You know, you always hear how you have usually your best putting weeks, but I would say I didn't putt that great until the last round. The first three, first three days, I didn't putt well at all. I didn't feel I was hitting it that good. So, But also, um, it, also it also taught me something in regards to winning a 72-hole event is you don't need to play your best golf for 72 holes. You just need to play good, good, solid golf, and just ball, just golf your ball around, and try and give yourself an opportunity with nine holes to go and see what happens. And that's really what I, I took out of that week, and then just getting the monkey off the back really is such a relief. 
to finally, you know, tick that box. It's it's pretty incredible to hear you say that you a didn't puddle that well and b um, you don't have to play seventy two good holes and that you just played good yep. consistent golf because you went sixty five yep. sixty eight sixty eight and then a course record equaling sixty three to finish yep. on Sunday. So there's a couple of things there. First and foremost, what we always say on this podcast is we love to see a winner go and grab it on Sunday, not just survive. So mm. leading into that Sunday, did you? Did you have any sense that you had a had a sixty three in you to go and you know really take the tournament with both hands? Yeah, I did. Uh, after three rounds, I was I think two hot, two shots behind, um, and I just knew I was going to play well. And I, it was just a matter of holding some putts. I thought if I can get a good start, make some putts, um, it was a it was going to be a really good opportunity for me to win. Um, and obviously, got off to a great start. Something I started birdie eagle birdie. Um, you know, I had all tap in on the first for birdie, then I hold a good 25-footer for eagle on on the second. I buried the really tough third hole and hold about a 15-footer there. So I was like, all right, here we go. I've got the putter going. I'm hitting it good. I just got to keep doing this and I should be sweet. So, yeah, definitely the night of, I felt pretty confident that I was going to have my, give myself a chance. And at what stage do you let yourself start to believe. I mean, you end up winning by three. So I'm wondering, is it, is it a few holes out? Is it literally not until that final putt drop? When did it start to dawn on you that, that, that this might finally be the, the breakthrough win? Uh, it's funny. I actually was thinking about after three holes. I, uh, I mean, birdie eagle birdie's not bad. Uh, you probably can start yeah. to entertain those thoughts. So I started thinking about it um, after I hold the putt on three. And I think I was leading at that point. I was thinking about, uh, you know, winning the event and, and have, doing the speech and what I'm going to say in the speech. And then I was like, Lee, you've got 15 holes left. Pull it in. Let's get going. Let's, let's refocus. Stop. Let's not get ahead of yourself. This, is not, this will not help you achieve what you're trying to achieve here. And locked back in and played really well. And then I probably wasn't until, I reckon, my second shot into 17. I hit it to about 10 feet there. And I was like, I've pretty much, I think I've got this covered. Uh, and I rolled another good 12-footer on 17, and then that's when I knew I was going to win. Because I was like, you can't. There's no way in the world you're making a 7 or 8 up the last hole there when you can only hit, you know, you can just hit a 3-iron or 2-iron off that tee and hit a wedge in. So it was, when you need to make 5 or 6, it's a pretty easy hole to do. So, so yeah, definitely walking down the last was, was pretty cool knowing I was going to win and really enjoy the atmosphere and, in those thoughts of thinking back to starting where I did and going through the, the route I did and all the close calls I've had and then to finally be in the situation where I was like, all right, I'm going to win this. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. And can you remember the feeling when, when, when that final putt dropped? I imagine it's probably overwhelmingly a sense of relief more than anything else. Yeah, it was relief for sure. And then excitement. Um, yeah, it's basically relief was the biggest feeling I got from it. And then how do you go? I mean, you, you speak about the form you had leading in. You crack through for a victory in August of 2019 and you feel like you're probably off to the races. You probably gain a little bit of status, a little bit of exemption there off the back of that. And then, you know, probably five or six months later, the, the world's coming to a to a crashing halt with, with COVID. It's really probably put a little bit of a pause in 
what was otherwise uh, a really strong period for yourself and, and potentially quite a, quite a launching pad to, to fulfill that potential. Yeah, it really was. It, it honestly couldn't have happened at a worse time. Um, you know, I made, I made the switch to, to start seeing Richard Woodhouse about five, six years ago. Um, and the work that I'd done with him the last couple of years especially, I was getting to a point where I was like, you know, I'm in a really good, really good space here. With my swing, technically, I'm in a really good place. I'm playing some good golf. I'm putting results on the board. Uh, played awesome 2019. Um, played well after I won Darwin, finished 10th at the PGA. A good, strong showing at the Aussie Open. Um, playing good, finished high up on the order of merit to give myself some exemptions through Q schools overseas. Um, potentially a couple of starts in Europe, a um, couple of starts in Asia, potentially. Um, so all these doors were starting to open for me. I was able to start setting a pretty good schedule for 2020. And then, um, yeah, March 2020 comes around and COVID comes around. And basically, I'm pretty sure I've lost all those exemptions and all those starts. And basically feels like all that hard work that I've done, I've basically got to start again and do it all over again. So it was definitely a bit of pill to swallow back end of last year. I sort of struggled. Struggled um, mentally with it. Um, yeah, it wasn't, it just felt like I'd been ripped off, to be honest. So it was kind of hard to get my head around it. Um, and the beginning of the year hasn't been great either. Uh, but I'm starting to get my game back to where, where I was in 2019 now. So just got to hope things open up and I play well. So it's just life, you know, it kicks you down and you sort of get back up and keep going. I was going to say, I mean, I feel like your journey and, and your story is um, is a series of, of those ebbs and flows of, of momentum yeah. cut short by um, majority of time, just pretty shitty luck. And, and I wonder if uh, with the perspective that, you know, in your early 30s that you, you now, not in the moment of, of last year, but now upon reflection can see that... Um, this is another one of those and, and it's not like it's the first time it's happened to me. I've got a bit of scar tissue there. I've got a bit of muscle memory. I know how to work my way back. I proved it to myself that I could do it. I did it tremendously well in 2019 and I've just got to get back there again. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. And when you've done it before, you know you can do it again. So it's just a matter of getting it done. Um, sometimes it's really hard to get your foot through that door. That's the hardest part is, is opening that door and giving yourself opportunities. So, um, Definitely don't feel like it's my last opportunity, but it, at the same time, it kind of sucks. <laughs> oh, doesn't, doesn't it ever? I mean, you mentioned that the year hadn't started off all that well. I, I want to talk to you about uh, a, a little round you put together at the uh, City of Brisbane Pro-Am uh, a month or two ago. Now, anyone who's listening to us um, from Brisbane, would be familiar with uh, Victoria Park, uh, right smack bang in the middle of the CBD. There's not so many courses like it around Australia, to be honest, to be that close to the middle of, of the city. Um, only, a, uh, only a short course. And when I say the number, uh, you hit a, a course record 10 under 55. But for those who've played it at Victoria Park, despite its um, diminutive size, 55 is almost beyond belief at a place which can really swallow your golf ball in part. So that's a, that's a near perfect day uh, and it's not often you hit rounds with with a five at the front no definitely not um and it was probably more of a surprise to me as well because i was, <laughs> was coming off the back of a, a 
pretty shitty six weeks, to be honest. I wasn't playing great. I was in a great headspace. Um, I was having a lot of issues with my back, so it was it was very unexpected. But I kind of started. I kind of found a little bit a couple of days before playing the Vic Pro Am, where I was like, oh, okay, uh, I think I might have had a bit of a kind of like a aha sort of little light bulb turn on situation. Um, and yeah, just played really well. Uh, actually, made a bogey in that round and part a couple of the really easier short par fours and. Um, was definitely nice just to get a win because I've spent a bit of money the previous month playing pretty shitty golf, to be honest. So, but uh, always nice to get a course record. I don't have too many of them. So, and it's, it sounds as like you left a few out there. We could have been talking 52s, 53s. Yeah, but then again, I hold a couple of good parts and I hit a couple, I got lucky with a couple of shots. So, yeah, there's always a couple of shots out there you can always find, but. I'm definitely, at the end of the day, I was pretty stoked with 55 and the paycheck that came with it as well. I bet. Speaking of having wins, uh, also one that we skipped over in, in the COVID break was uh, you, you win at the X-Golf Championships. You shared that with, yeah. uh, with, with, with Jordan Zernig. I know it's something that you've taken to uh, quite well with a team down at X-Golf and Ogre here in Brisbane, and it's a, it's a form of the game which is skyrocketing, really, given the environment that we have found ourselves in over the past 18 months. Uh, tell us about, I suppose, how you've taken to the format, and, and for those who might not have might not have played it before, what you find um, what you find beneficial from it. Because as I said, it's become a, a neat little marriage for you, spending a bit of time down there at X Golf and Nogra when you're in town. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I got to meet the boys there at X Golf and Nogra um, a couple of weeks before that um, that event they ran. Um, it's it's different to normal golf, obviously. You know, you're playing off. Um, fake grass or whatever you want to call it and you're hitting into a screen. So there is a bit of a learning curve there. But it's a great place to go and practice, you know, when the weather's shit outside or or you just don't want to go get dressed and, you know, put on golf clothes and go put sunscreen on and all that kind of crap. You can just go in for a couple of hours in your bodies and your shirt and shoes or, or go in straight after a gym session or whatever it is. It's, it's really handy for me because it's five minutes down the road from my gym. Um, 20 minutes from my house so it's it's good just to have that extra option you know sometimes golf courses going through renovations and stuff so you can't do a lot of work there anyway so it's just another avenue where where i can go and practice and have a bit of fun too i find it brings a bit more uh, enjoyment and brings a bit more fun back into the game of golf you can go out there and, you, know, you can have a beer and, and hit some balls and, and have a have a laugh and watch some live sport or um you know, when the NFL's on, I go in there Monday mornings and I play in practice and I watch the NFL at the same time with with a couple of boys in there. So it's you know, it's just a it's just a it's a great tool to have at my disposal and the boys in there have been unreal with me. They, they look after me really well in there and um, and they're just good lads. So no, it's definitely a great um, great arrangement and great partnership that I've got going with them at the moment. And you've been very generous with your time, Brett. We've got a couple more up the sleeve, but I, I can't let you go without talking about, and you mentioned the fact that X-Golf is just five minutes down the road from your gym. Now, we, we flagged it uh, very early on in the in the chat that you made a conscious decision to probably transform the body a bit, particularly with, uh, with the struggles you've had with your back. Uh, you do go and, and worship at the altar of, of Wink Fit, and, and Wink's, the great man, Matt Winkley, has been a... a, a an, multiple time guest on this podcast and, and runs a very tight ship down there at, at Wingfit uh, in Wingfit Gym. Talk to us about, um, I suppose, 
making that decision uh, because from what he tells me, it came far, far before the, um, the Bryson bubble where people just went and got thick and hit the ball further. You made a very conscious decision to probably spend more time in the gym to prolong the longevity of your career and it seems to have paid dividends. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, it just sort of got to a point in my, my career, my age, where I was like, I really need to start looking after my body. Um, and I kind of made, I just, I just admitted some, um, some faults of my, of my own where I, I know I don't like gym. I don't like motivating myself to go to the gym. Um, it's just an area of my life where I really struggle to motivate myself to do so. I thought, well, how are you going to get around this issue that you have where you'd rather sit on the couch instead of going to the gym? So I thought, you know what, you need, you need to hire a personal trainer. You need to find someone who has a good, who who's dedicated to the golfing side of things, who's worked with golfers before. He'd worked with Cam Smith. Obviously, Cam Smith's a phenomenal player. and He's made some pretty good progress with his body as well. And I was like, all right, we'll have a chat to this guy, see what he's like. You know, see if I gel with him, seemed like a really good bloke. And basically told him, I said, mate, I'm useless when it comes to gym and motivating myself. So, you know, this is why I'm hiring you and I need you to make sure I stick to to my, my sessions and work hard and don't let me slack off and all that kind of stuff. And it's been great. Um, I've definitely seen huge, huge benefits and huge progress in the last 18 months with, with things. Um, so, yeah, no, he's been awesome. Um, I enjoy it. I enjoy it more now than I used to. Um, I'm definitely learning more things about my body than I previously didn't know. He's a good man, Winks. Uh, very, very good man. He, he did um, ask me to stitch you up a little bit uh, and, yeah, and, and, and ask <laughs> ask you whether or not you're still having large lattes prior to sessions. Um, definitely not. Warned me that it might go in a direction that I wouldn't necessarily be pleased with, but it seems as though there's a there's a story there which I imagine probably has something to do with um, with coffee pre cardio. Yeah, um, yeah, coffee and milk not the greatest combination when you've got to do cardio at the end of a gym session. Um, yeah, so right, so I got to the got to the gym this one day. And Winks will spring on cardio when I'm like halfway through. Well, basically at the end of a gym session, like, right, we're doing some conditioning. So I never know when I'm going to do it. I haven't really done much of it lately either, which is good because this experience really turned me off it. Um, so I get to the gym. Um, one of the trainers there is going out for coffee. asked if I want coffee and I love coffee. So I was like, yeah, I love coffee. Came back with a large coffee, like so much milk in it. I'm just drinking in my session. I'm feeling good. Um, then we do the conditioning and he he worked me so hard where I was just not feeling good at all. Um, and then the caffeine decided to go through me pretty quickly. So I started getting these uh, stomach, stomach aches and then I was feeling sick from the actual conditioning. Uh, and then next minute I'm in the toilet um, basically shitting and throwing up at the same time so uh that was really enjoyable and really fun and definitely something that scarred me from doing conditioning ever again oh goodness me he, he wasn't wrong it was a it was a good way, good way yeah. in which to stitch you up. Yeah. i was on the toilet throwing throwing up into a bucket and doing my business 
<laughs> I don't know if the, I don't know if there's any correlation between that moment and uh, and the recent uh, the recent change of venue for Wingfit. Maybe it's just outgrown the old facility, or maybe you wanted to get away from. Uh, <laughs> get away maybe from I haven't seen that bucket it. since. So <laughs> I think that's in the bin. Uh, just finally, uh, given you spend an awful lot of time, um, be it between proams or the gym or the range or at X Golf. How do you switch off? What's what's time away uh, from golf look like for Brett Rankin? A quick scroll through the Instagram account looks like a combination of of cars, uh, red wine, and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, and the Philadelphia Eagles, and basically Formula One and AFL lines. Basically, I'm very, I love my sport. I love watching live sports. That's usually my getaway. Um, also, cars. I've got a car that I spend a bit of time on sometimes, take the track and whatever. Um, yeah, I just do 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 basically anything any 30-year-old does, really. Um, there are a few few red wine nights in there every now and again. I don't mind a swirl. Most of my mates, they'll always send me uh, some Snapchats of them drinking wine and swirling. I'm a bit of a swirler when I drink wine. So I have a couple of different techniques that I do, and they, they definitely associate that with me. So... Um, yeah, I just like to have a good time and lay low sometimes as well. So um, lately, I've been playing with Xbox, especially up here. I brought the Xbox up. It's uh, it's helped me uh, kill a bit of boredom in between events and get me away from thinking about golf too. So, so yeah, I always find things to do. What uh, what does the next few weeks look like? As I said at the top, we find you in the middle of a pro-am swing. We get you in Mackay at the moment. You're working your way down the Queensland coast. So a, a string of pro-ams ahead in the next few weeks. Yeah, so we got Mackay here a couple more days. Then we go out out west to the mining towns like Dyside, Emerald, Blackwater, Millmere, uh, and then off to Rockhampton for a three-day event there, uh, and then down to the Sunshine Coast for a bunch of pro-ams, and then. Proams in Brizzy and Northern Rivers before going back to Darwin for NTPGA in August. So basically, just proam life the next few week, a uh, few months. Well, Brett, you've been very generous with your time uh, the second time around. I definitely think 2.0 has, has been an improvement on the first. So much as we did the first time, my friend, we certainly appreciate you you spending some time on the 19th tee and sharing your story. Uh, we wish you all the very best for the next uh, few weeks in the prime circuit and, and building into those bigger events where you'll no doubt uh, you'll no doubt shine as, as, as we know you will mate looking forward to uh, keeping an eye on the journey catching up again in the future and and hopefully uh, once you're back in brizzy we'll we'll get down and, and swing into the swing into the screen at x golf yeah for sure early early july i reckon boys that's we'll Danny, mate we look forward to look forward to joining thanks again for your time mate. much appreciated awesome my pleasure thank you